We are a people who have been transformed by the power of the gospel. And every one of us have a story to tell. And I hope that you will consider allowing us to hear your story in the comfort of your own living room, even if you don't have shoes that are all blinged out like Zern. You, you have a story to tell. And we hope you'll consider saying yes to the comms team as they ask you, invite you to share your story. As you know, uh, we are talking all this year about the gospel and how we can live unashamed of the gospel. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, whatever form it takes, I want to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 4 as we continue in this journey, uh, not ashamed of the gospel. This afternoon, we're looking at living on the edge. It's not what I think you are guessing it is. But before we go to God's word, let's bend our hearts toward him. Let's pray together. Father God, we come with hearts full, full of stuff we have picked up this week. Some of it is anxiety. Some of it is worry. Some, some of it is genuinely stuff we need to take care of at some point in this day or tomorrow. I pray that you would give us just a spiritual moment, an oasis just now. Just help us to focus on what you, the living creator God, has to say to us today. If you are real, we want to hear from you. So speak to your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you weren't with us last week, let me just give a bit of background. The church is not yet the church. Not even in Acts 4 do they recognize that they are a separate entity. They are still worshiping in the temple. They consider themselves to be Jews who have discovered the Messiah. The Messiah who came, taught, died, and then lived again. And they were also recipients of the Messiah as he came again and filled them with his presence. And you may remember, if you were here with us last week, as Pastor Ollie informed us that this was a people who were suddenly in a hostile environment right there in the temple because of the message they preached. The temple was controlled by the Sadducees who did not believe in a resurrection. They believed when they died, they went to Sheol, the pit. They were deeply disturbed when they heard this message about a random prophet who taught, and there were many, who was killed as an insurrectionist. And then, according to these followers of this Jesus of Nazareth, had risen from the dead. And so these disciples, these followers, were arrested, interrogated. And when they were eventually released, they returned to their friends. And this is where we pick up the story in verse 23 to give a report. Verse 23 of chapter 4 says this, When they were released, meaning Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And it was a short report. The report was simply, stop it. Now, if you had parents, you're probably familiar with this kind of message. In fact, my father would tell me this many, many times. It was a stop it, and then it usually ended with a prophetic warning. Stop it. You're going to get yourself killed. He didn't nuance 
right? It's just that this is going to be the end of you, so, so just stop it. Now, um, children are naturally inquisitive. Now, I apologize to our AV team. I forgot the script. Can you show the next slide? Th- this is my uh, first granddaughter. Now, it's kind of bright. You, you might not be able to see that she is staring down at gray carpet. And, and when you're three months of age, gray carpet is amazing. She, she was just riveted by, no, there was nothing on this carpet except, whoa, that is what? Carpet. Right? That's, that's all. Children are naturally inquisitive. I, I noticed my, my firstborn, it wasn't carpet for him because he was a boy. Boys are inquisitive in a dangerous way, which is why they need to hear from their fathers, this is going to kill you. So, so my oldest son was all about the electrical sockets. <laughs> yes, um, Pastor Ollie said, oh, be, because you, you know your pastor has some uh, tolerance for risk. And it runs in my DNA, unfortunately. So every time he got some small object, he would stick it in the electrical socket just to see what would happen. And one time, he took a paper clip and unrolled it and stuck it in the electrical socket. Now, nothing happened except it blew the end off of the, off of the paper clip. It wasn't a big deal. Then he got a screwdriver. And Sherry and I were downstairs, and he was up in his bedroom. All of a sudden, all the lights went off. I didn't know what to think of it. I finally went upstairs. There was my five-year-old laid out on his back. And I said, what? Stop it. This is going to get you killed. Because that's what parents do. Like Children are naturally inquisitive. And I was interested to find out in, in, in America, where they survey absolutely everything, Everything in 2008, some American Children's Society decided to survey parents and ask them to start counting how many times in a given day they told their toddler no or stop it. Do you know, on average, the average American toddler heard no 400 times a day. I did the math. That means by the time this little girl was five, she heard no or stop it 438,000 times. Right? Because they have this natural curiosity and we're all in a little bit in a few ways like helicopter parents like we we hover over our children so afraid they're going to damage themselves you know cats have nine lives but my precious snowflake has only one and we're we're constantly worried that they might do something just go out there on the edge and then that will be the end what we're really worried about is all our friends will say what kind of parent allows her son to stick a screwdriver in an electrical socket. But that has produced a kind of pushback generation, right? The, the generation that rejects the wisdom of our parents embraces life to the fullest. Next slide. Sorry, brother. And, and when we talk about living life on the edge, that means we have a friend who only exists... The only reason we friend him is because he has an iPhone and can take photos of us doing something ridiculous. Like, don't do this at home. In fact, don't do this ever. 
This is a real deal right now. For young people have been led to believe if they're living right on the edge of danger, then they're really living. That's living life on the edge. Hanging over a death drop. Some have suggested this is how the first believers were living. They're so full of excitement. You know, they were just living on the edge. But, but I think if, if that is the view, it so diminishes the inherent power of the gospel. Here's what we discovered 27 years as missionaries. If missionaries don't have a call... The excitement of living overseas wears off in a hurry. Excitement has a short shelf life. There's something more in it. There had to be something more for these early followers of Christ to respond to opposition the way they did. Now notice first of all in verses 24 through 28. They had this correct gospel response to gospel opposition. Remember, the opposition wasn't to Jewish people because they were all Jewish people. The opposition was to the message of the gospel and to the behaviors that that message created in people. Here is a correct gospel response. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but it seems like every time I read the news, I hear this fairly new term called alternative facts. Have have you heard of that term, alternative facts? You know, alternative facts essentially are self-generated fiction that gives me permission to deny a truth that's obvious to everyone else. Um, it, It gives me permission to embrace my fears or my biases And they especially come out when crises come. It allows me to inform myself of a separate reality from everyone else in my world. While we were still in Vancouver, we reconstituted an old European church. Within six months, we got a letter from the government of Canada threatening to remove our nonprofit status and take away our property. Why? Because one of our congregations was sending money internationally directly to a missionary. That's against the law. But do you know how one of our elders interpreted that? Alternative facts. Canada is so hostile to Christians. Do you feel like Singapore is hostile to you? That's an alternative fact. Canada and Singapore are hostile to people who break the law. Notice... The response of these first century Christians was not, Oh God, do you not see this? What, do you suddenly hate us? It was, it, look at how these people disrespect me. It was not, Oh, these Jews are so hostile to us. Their first response was worship. You see what's happening in verses 24 and 26. They return, and then verse 24, when the congregation, they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, 
who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, here's what's happening. They begin to sing a hymn. Together they sing an old hymn of their faith, which is Jewish faith. Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Do you see what's happening? They're not taking opposition personally. Because when you've been transformed by the gospel, you know this is not about me. You hear this? It is not about us. See, this is one of many reasons why we ought to get the word out. You ought to run, not walk into the sanctuary of the Lord. This is why David cried out, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Do we understand that it's in the middle of worship that this almighty creator God gives us divine clarity? All of the filters... All of the alternative facts cannot stand in his presence. Notice the psalmist in Psalm 73 begins this psalm by crying out, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And it ends with this, Until I entered the sanctuary of the Lord, then I understood. You see, when we gather in the Lord's presence and intentionally place our hearts and our minds beneath the authority of his word, he invites us into his divine perspective. We we suddenly allow his word to point us to the truth. And the truth here is the battle is not us against them. And this is the first thing that became very obvious obvious in the presence of the Lord. In the middle of their worship, they were able to identify the battle. Verses 27 and 28 says this, For truly in this city, O God, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Who was against Jesus? Everyone. Why is it today that I hear people say, I love Jesus, just don't like Christians? How has it become opposite day in the 21st century? Because in the first century, the battle was clear against Jesus, the anointed one of God, and everyone else. Do you see how we've got it wrong? We've somehow developed this us-against-the-world mentality that is hostile to the gospel. It is not good news. It is Christ, and listen, it used to be against us. That's why in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, We too were enemies, but were reconciled by the death of Christ on the cross. 
We were with Pontius Pilate. We were with the Jews and the Gentiles. We were with Herod. We were enemies to this same loving, merciful God who is life. But when we gather in worship with those first century followers, suddenly we see this consistent thread through all of history. Suddenly they hear again the words of Moses in Exodus chapter 14, who said, Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Suddenly they could be reminded of the words of David, a young shepherd boy, fresh out of the pasture, shouting at all of the armies of Saul, saying this, Let all of the assembly know that the Lord saves not with sword or with spear, for the battle is his. Remember the words of Jahaziel, probably not many of us do. Second Chronicles chapter 20, when he said this prophet, listen, all of Judah, listen, King Jehoshaphat, do not be afraid of any great horde, for the battle is not yours, it is the Lord. To the Lord belongs the battle, and I am a part of his captured booty. You are a part of his captured booty. That's why there is celebration in heaven when the conqueror brings captives home. You and I are the result of this battle won. Here is then a penetrating question Every one of us who grew up Christian or perhaps drifted into becoming a cultural Christian, here's a question every one of us should ask ourselves. What poorly resourced, puny God would be so weak as to need the help of a Canadian to fight his battles? What shelf bolted, short-armed God would be so emasculated to require a political movement to support his spiritual agenda? What God would need that? What God would need our personal charisma? No God at all. Except the God of my own religion. But the true God, the living God, fights his own battles. He needs me only to open my mouth and cry, joy, joy. Because I'm lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I ran from him, and he pursued me. Now, second, the correct request. You know how come uh, we get into trouble and we cry out to God? We, we cry out to God because we're upset with him. We're upset with others. Life hasn't turned out the way I planned. I get angry with God. I shout with my son, why do you hate me? Verses 29 and 30 is a witness of the correct kind of request in the middle of gospel opposition. Oh, by the way, can I just say this? I find it a bit troubling. <laughs> 
when after we ourselves have become objects of grace, after we ourselves know the joy of being under the new covenant, I find it troubling how quickly we run back to the old covenant. After being judged by grace, we command justice for those who are not us. Many of us, we love the prayers of David, right? Because, Pastor, it allows me to pray with authenticity. When I'm angry, I need one of those imprecatory prayers. The reason I know them is because I prayed them. I, I love those prayers. I love Psalm 35, verses 5 and 6, when he cries out, Let them be like the chaff in the wind, with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. You know, that's real stuff, right? That's, that's David being a real man in, in real trouble. Let their way be dark and slippery, with the armies of the Lord pursuing them. It's like a nightmare. You know, you're running and slipping and they're pursuing you and you can't move. Let it be like that for them, God. Those people aren't nice to me. Those people make fun of me because I'm in church on a Sunday afternoon when they're all taking their afternoon nap. <laughs> My, I like this one especially. Psalm 58, 8. You should write this down. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Right? That's in your Bible. Right? That's an Old Testament prayer. Or what about Psalm 59, 13? Consume them until they're no more. Just so they will know there's a God. Right? That's Old Testament evangelism. Kill them so they'll know your God. But, but notice, GBC, when these Old Testament men and women were exposed to this New Testament gospel, they lost that hostility. They didn't say God pursue them. Make their day a nightmare. They didn't say, Lord, let their lives dissolve like slime. Verse 29, they said this. This is the request of God. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats. I'm fascinated by that word, look. You know, Greek is very specific, right? It it uses a word that if we translated it literally, it's a word that Sherry often uses when she's talking to me and suspects I might be a bit distracted. And for some reason, she cannot say this without using hand motions. She says, Ian, sweetie, focus. That's that word. Like, assuming God, the God of all creation, has got a lot to do, they're crying out, God, can you notice this? Can, can, Can you just... Notice this. Look upon their threats. Focus on this for a moment. And then, verse 30, stretch out your hand to heal. Oh, you thought something. Notice this and let them be like slime. No, notice this and stretch out your hand to heal. And in the middle of this request of God, they have a request for themselves. Well, you're looking at this, God. 
Well, you're stretching out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Grant us what? Grant your servants to continue to do what they said don't do. Speak your word with all boldness. In the Greek, it is speak your gospel with more boldness. I am not yet at the boldness point of getting arrested, boldness. Are you? They were at the point of arrested boldness, and in the middle of that, they said, Lord, we got one request. Give us more of that. The, I want to get arrested boldness. I want to be that not ashamed of your gospel. Crises create opportunity for the gospel. The temple was in an uproar. The Sadducees and the ruling council wanted to beat these followers of this prophet Jesus, but they didn't dare do it. Why? Because the people were saying, this man was 40 years old. He can walk. This God is almighty. He stretched out his hand and healed him and listened to this man shouting glory to God. Crises create opportunity for the gospel. Notice Finally, in verse 31, God's response. I wish I'd said God's resources. It's an R one. God's response to gospel opposition. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The first time I heard this phrase, living on the edge, was at a youth camp in California. And, and the speaker was trying to be cool in front of all these skaters and punk rockers who had come to this youth camp. And so he busts out this term, living on the edge. And he began to say, this, this is how the first disciples lived. They lived on the edge, in prison, out of prison, crucified, died, stoned. That's edgy, man. But that so diminishes the power of the gospel. Here, here's what the, the edge is. Years ago, have I mentioned my firstborn son? Years ago, um, he used to have a problem, at, you know, at night. Not that problem. His problem was, I would put him to bed, I would read the, the Bible story, we'd pray together, and then I'd go downstairs. And within an hour, we would hear it. We'd be downstairs talking, drinking tea, and he fell out of bed. He fell out of bed every single night. And, and finally, Sherry was creating so much anxiety in her because you know how mothers, our children are an extension of mothers. Um, fathers, occasionally, they're an extension of us. But, but Sherry was feeling like, are we the worst parents in the world? Why, what's going on? We, should we take them to the doctor? You know, this extreme kind of response. Well, well guys, we, we need to handle the problem, right? So I decide, well, for, you know, I'll handle it, sweetie. You just relax. And so um, I decided I'm going to stay there and watch this. Now, this is before um, smartphones, so I didn't have a flashlight. I had to have a little flashlight to watch him. So I, I read him his story. We prayed together. And 
Then I sat there with my flashlight. And then I saw it happen. And, and the next morning, after the cobwebs had all cleared out, I, I said, Leighton, Daddy's figured it out. The, the problem is, you, you fall asleep too close to where you got in. The first time you roll over, you're on the floor. And that's what he did, because we would pray together, he would hold my hand, and then he would let it drop, you know, right by the side of his mattress, right on the edge of the mattress. And then sometime in the night, 30 minutes, 40, he would roll over, boom, on the floor. And so here's the key. Layton, move to the center of the mattress. Now, now there's a point to this story. Some of you are thinking, thank goodness, there's only seven minutes left. A lot of us treat the gospel like it's the entry point. Right? It's the point at which we recognized our sin. And the good news was God gifted us an ability to turn away from it and, and turn to him. The gospel is that good news that saved us. And so we love to sing the, that old hymn at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away, rolled away. <laughs> did, did you notice that little word where I first saw the light? If, if you're not turning to him every single day, you're falling asleep too close to where you got in. And the first time trouble rolls you over, you'll be in a crisis on the floor shouting, God hates me. The gospel is for every single day. Every single day I remember the price that was paid for my salvation. Every single day, I turn again to the cross. I see the blood that was shed by my Savior, and I cannot judge another. Because that was the price he paid for this enemy. The gospel comes. The power comes because we are here on purpose. You notice the Spirit filled them. Now, I know uh, some people look at this verse and they develop this theology of a second baptism or, you know, a second filling the Holy Spirit. That's not what the word means. It means that there is this bubbling up of the same Spirit. Well, some of those old choruses were not bad. I've got a river of life flowing out of me. Why is it flowing out? Because it's bubbling up. It's passive. I don't make it happen by some incantation. It's him filling me constantly for the sake of what? The assignment. The Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, not so people could lay back and say, "Woo, this is awesome. I feel a sweet joy right now. The Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, not so that we could have awesome gifts to display in front of each other. 
The Holy Spirit came in Acts 2 so that an unschooled fisherman who had never been to seminary, no one dared call him pastor, could stand up in front of thousands and share the gospel. In this moment, the room shook. The Holy Spirit bubbled up and filled them with what? Boldness. Why? To share good news. This is why he lives in us. Not some separate entity, but this is why the resurrected Savior returns to fill up this empty shell of a man with the power of his good news. This is why God on high would preserve the life of our brother Jonathan. I wish it was for selfish reasons because I got a free man hug just now. But it's for his gospel. My, my brother Jonathan texted several of us to say, I'm re-evaluating my life because God has given me a fresh lease on life. Right How many of us woke up this morning? That is your fresh lease on life without a heart event. And my prayer is that none of us would leave this place saying, well, I'm going to reevaluate my life as soon as I have a major health crisis. Please. The wonder a breath came to you this morning for the gospel. That heart is beating right now, and it beats for the gospel. There's space in your calendar. The space is for the gospel. I'm going to invite you to bow with me for just a moment, and we'll be closed. But I wonder how many of you like uh, me. And and. Well, I say, I've got no excuse because I surrendered to this full-time. Do you know, honestly, there's no such thing as full-time and part-time Christians. We exist every single day, every one of us, for good news. That crisis you have this week anxiety you feel about your job, the person who is horrible to you, that health scare, it too is a platform for the gospel. My name is Ian, and I am not ashamed of the gospel. In this quiet moment, Assuming the Lord knows your name in your own heart and in your own mind. What do you want to tell him you live for right now? In a few minutes, we'll be voting on new elders and at least one new staff. Are we going to vote for the gospel? Or are there other things that trouble us? Will we 
be distracted, to vote, not our will, but God's will be done. Tomorrow morning, you're going to open your eyes. What is that day for? Have you already started putting stuff on your agenda? Does it include one word? Gospel. This good news. Father God, I thank you that we, all of us, are the product of someone who was faithful with the gospel. How grateful we are that that old rugged cross, not just back in the day, but every day is a reminder of the grace and wonder of your mercy. I pray that you would draw us together as your children for one noble purpose. May we be empowered by your spirit, not once, but every day, to boldly proclaim this good news. Jesus is alive. He conquered death and lives so all may know him. We pray this in the mighty, matchless name of Christ. Amen. Let us rise and sing the song of response.